syncing up. Okay. Uh, welcome back to another episode of TNT. Uh, as always, it is me, Jason, and I'm joined here with a wonderful friend of mine, uh, Dion, and he is the uh, same year as me. He's currently now second year, and welcome aboard. Thank you for having me. <laughs> welcome, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we start anything, how about you introduce yourself a little bit? Well, as you know, my name is Dion. My last name's Testore. Um, I study at UTS. I do law and communications, majoring in creative writing. And mm-hmm. this year I'm starting a third degree at Campion College in the liberal arts. So Really? That's, yeah, concurrently. Oh. So it's going to be a big study load, but that's comprised of four cores of philosophy, theology, history, and literature, wow. which would be great. Good yeah. on you. Yeah. And you're doing that and also balancing work. Yes, yes. I work uh, as a casual at the cinema, so get yeah. a lot of cheap movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes as a tutor as well, high school tutor. Yeah. Oh, as a, you are balancing a lot, my friend. Thank you. And <laughs> also with all your social work with your society and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so if you guys are wondering how we know each other, we met at a program that was funded by ACU, uh, which I've talked about before. Um, we both went to Rome for two weeks and London for one week. Mm. And we sat on next, right next to each other on the plane. Yes. <laughs> Jason tried crawling over me <laughs> while I was asleep. Woke me up. <laughs> Needless to say, he enjoyed it. <laughs> um, he's a very good chess player. <laughs> as we experienced on the plane. Um, but what really brought us together was not only our Catholic faith, which we would talk more about, but also our common interests such as our love of fantasy. Yes, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, yes. Star Wars and the likes. Yes. And um, also with another friend of ours, Elio and Justin. Mm. Um, so when we first met, I actually think I saw you at the airport. Mm. We were sitting across from each other. Yeah. I, we had no idea we were on the same track. No, I was there by myself. Yeah, yeah. I was with my dad. <laughs> and I was thinking that he, you were probably on like another flight to somewhere else. And then when the leaders and like the coordinators started calling everyone together, you stood up and I stood up. Yeah. And then we were like, oh. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello there. <laughs> Hello there. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we sat next to each other. Yeah. We... Honestly, just kept to ourselves. We mm. played a couple games on the plane and then kept to ourselves. You were reading your book. Yep. I was just watching my movies. And then when the plane landed, I said, another happy landing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that then, was how we knew. We yeah. were soulmates. <laughs> <laughs> and then Dion just started cracking up. Yeah. So, um, and now the rest is history. We enjoyed Rome. Um, we learned a lot about each other. Um, especially coming from you uh, with your Catholic faith, um, who would have thought that the world would put us together with Elio mm. and Justin having strong opinions about how we would how we see the world. Um, but first, I would like to know about how you were brought up. So if you were to, to talk about your childhood. <laughs> My childhood, okay. Um, well, let's give a bit of context, shall we? Mm-hmm. My... For those of you wondering what race I am, um, Asian. <laughs> <laughs> it's one, one of many parts. Um, 
My father was raised in an East African nation called Djibouti. That's D-J-I-B-O-U-T-I. And his mother is Somali and French from Mm -hmm. the colonial days. Mm -hmm. And his father is Italian and Eritrean. And they met in Djibouti. And that's where they raised my father. Now, he came to Australia in 1993 when he was about 13 years old. And my mother is... Hungarian and Indonesian. So as you can imagine, I have quite a big mix in me. Um, But both of my parents were relatively poor and growing up we didn't have a lot. Um, But what we did have was faith in Christ, in Christ Jesus, and that kept us through, kept us going. Mm. And, you know, we went through a lot of hard times. My parents were extremely young. My mother was 17 when she conceived me in 18, when she had me. Um, And my dad was 19. So it's weird to think that I'm older than my parents were when they had me now. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, obviously you can see they faced a lot of struggles growing up. My dad was studying extremely hard, um, trying to provide for his family, for me and my mother. And my mum was working as well. I didn't get to see them a lot because they were working so much, but... um, the few times we had together were great. Um, but, yeah, like I said, the, the real binding thing was was faith. Mm. Um, and that kept us going through a lot. And now, yeah, everything's great. Uh, my father ended up landing a great job. Um, we're able to go to a good school, me and my younger sister, um, mm. or everything provided for. We had tutoring, all that sort of stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, and... That's how I ended up being, I guess, relatively successful as a student, um, getting into university, landing this thing at ACU, how I met Jason. Mm. And, yeah, that's it. Basically, the rest is history. If you want to pick my brains a bit more specific. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You talked a little bit about uh, a rite of passage type of ordeal that you faced Uh, in Africa. Yes. yes. Um, Why don't you tell them that? (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, because my family is African... um, they have a, a tradition where you have to kill an uh, animal <laughs> to, <laughs> to become a man, so to speak. And basically my dad's was extremely traumatizing for him because his dad basically made him hold down a lamb while he cut its throat. Um, mine was a bit less arduous. It was just a rooster um, that I had to... <laughs> But Dion, all life, all life is life. All life is life. Yes, it is, which is why you respect it, by raising it well. <laughs> Don't factory farm, kids. No. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I was blooded that day. Um, mm. And, yeah, there's a lot of interesting things about African culture, um, mm. those being one of them. But there's a big thing about being an honourable person, mm. um, which is, I guess, where partly where that tradition comes from is basically you should you know be able to look something in the eye if you are going to use it um and you should be honorable about being the person that carries out the sentence i suppose mm-hmm. um 100% yeah 100% yeah and i see that a lot with how you stand tall in terms of pursuing your faith thank you yeah because um with a lot of things um pardon me but I am, um, how should I say this? When I first saw you, mm. 
I wouldn't think or take you as someone that was a very conservative and hardcore Catholic. Why is that? I'm, I was shallow at that age. Yeah. So when I first saw you, I would have thought that you were just, you know, happy-go-lucky rugby player. Rugby player. (laughs) (laughs) Happy-go-lucky rugby player. Someone that was just very casual and chill, laid Mm. back, you know what I mean? But then the more I got to know you, the more I heard you speak about um, how you would see the world and how you would see the Catholic faith, the, the church mm. in in its um, whole immense glory. Mm. You you showed me that you were more than, how should I say, a white guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, you have my immense respect. Thank you. That. Yeah. Because um, a lot of people, like a lot of people that, when I, when I saw the team that we were going to be grouped with, mm. um, I think it's just how I was brought up. You, you, you judge people pretty quickly. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, but, I judge people. Everyone judges people. Yeah, but I'm, I'm leaning towards like removing that now mm. and just seeing them as who they are um, first by speaking to them rather than developing a persona by how they... How they look. Yeah, how they look, how they set themselves. And... Um, because your upbringing is more or less different from mine. Yes. Um, we did both come from very poor backgrounds. Mm. Um, parents are always hustling just to put food on the table. Yeah. But as always, faith was always in the middle of our, our relationship. Christ was always the center of everything. Mm. That's why they worked so hard to put me in a Catholic school. Because mm. if... If it was just the sense of just money, they would have put me in a public school. Yeah. And I would have not been with you in mm-hmm. Rome. Exactly. Yeah. If anything, I would have just been, what would I would have done? Schoolies? <laughs> <laughs> just, um, <laughs> Thankfully not. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was an eye-opening experience, I would say, with Rome. Definitely. Yeah. Because um, I only experienced Christ through one perception, so to speak. It was through um, a Filipino perspective Mm. with my youth group, Mm. predominantly being a Filipino uh, youth group. We learned through worship. We learned through um, uh, affirming each other, praying in tongues. Mm. Um, I never experienced that gift of tongues, Mm. but um, I've witnessed people around me that has spoken in tongues it's a very um, new experience. I, I didn't know how to feel about it. Sure. Yeah. Um, I remembered one thing, though, was that we had a workshop where you would write down what gift of the Holy Spirit that you would like. Mm. Um, I always wanted the gift of, uh, I think, wisdom. Mm. So constantly, like, I wanted to know rather than to have the gift of tongues or anything mm. like that. I wanted to consistently learn more. So I think that paid off somewhat mm. um, with how I see the world now and how I would talk to people and how I would show them different perceptions and perspectives. Mm. But um, I still think that I am a dunce <laughs> in the world of Catholicism <laughs> compared to you and Elio, <laughs> Daniel and Justin. But um, I still believe that I have a lot to learn. And I would assume you would say the same. Yeah, well, it's funny you should mention wisdom because wisdom is, requesting wisdom is such a humble and admirable trait. So I wouldn't sell yourself short. Mm. In fact, in the story of Solomon, King Solomon of the Israelites, the Mm. son of David, the Mm. the king right after 
King David. Mm. David was the one who slew Goliath. Mm-hmm. Um, God basically told him he could have anything he wanted. He just had to request it. Mm. He could have riches, women, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and Solomon said, I don't want any of that. I just want wisdom mm. to lead my country well, mm. and to be a righteous ruler. And God said, because of that, because you asked for the correct gift of wisdom, and you're so humble, I will give you that and everything else shall proceed forth from wisdom, so so to speak. Mm. So I think our culture in this day and age is sort of losing a love for wisdom. Um, You know, young people, you don't see them really in their books anymore. Not that you have to earn wisdom through books, but you don't see them out in the world looking for knowledge, hungry for knowledge. You see them out in the world looking for corporeal pleasure or immediate gratification you know not a sugar that, rush yeah yeah whatever will just make them feel good on the surface but it eventually dies down and it's not lasting wisdom is one of the things that lasts yeah um i would also think that they're misconceptualizing the whole idea of wisdom mm. it's now changed to delusion mm. delusion stubbornness opinionated or bigotry now yes. but since everyone has their own um uh, relativist truth, yeah. my own truth, yeah. your own truth, relativist truth. Everything is wisdom now. Yeah. So that wisdom has been cheapened. <laughs> <laughs> wisdom is not cheap, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> and this is when the controversy starts. <laughs> um, with your faith, right? Mm. Uh, what are your future plans and how you would preach it? how I would preach my faith. There's a variety of things. I think you have to first and foremost see every soul as a potential convert. Every soul is a potential child of God because we're all made by God. God is all our father. But that does not necessarily mean that we are all children of God. Children of God are the ones who follow him, the Bible says. Um, We follow his ways. Those who do not follow him are children of the devil because you are replicating, you are a child of who you follow. So you manifest your master's behavior in your own life. Mm. So if you are a liar, a thief, an adulterer, all those sorts of things, then you are manifesting in your life the devil's behavior. I'm not saying you can't be (laughs) faithful and sin. Yeah. But but choosing to... uh, Dis, dismay and disobey God's forgiveness is yes. is the idealization of being the devil's child. It's exactly correct. A, a true child of God will feel remorse when they sin mm. and they will come back. They will come back to confession and they will want to return to God like a lost sheep returning to its shepherd. The um, prodigal son. Exactly, yeah, the prodigal son. Whereas those who relish and take great joy in, in things of in destructive behaviors, in sinful behaviors, they are essentially manifesting the behavior of the devil. But even for those people, and in fact, the, the majority of people are those people, you must see hope in them. You must see the, of the spark of divinity in them. Of course. And, you know, a lot of them actually pained by that lifestyle. Um, mm. I know a lot of people who live that lifestyle and they were just never exposed to Christ. And all you have to do is just give them a little push, give them a little push, talk to them, be there for them. And they come to Christ with their own accord. 
you know, some people it might be more difficult for them, some people it might be easier, but they find refreshment, joy, um, love, kindness, and most of all, peace in Christ because it is a lifestyle that gives a lasting peace and a lasting pleasure, not mm. just a, a surface pleasure like these sinful lifestyles. They give a little spike of, of fleshly pleasure and then that's it, it's gone, and you're chasing the next high. Mm. Um, so I guess how I preach my faith is sort of going to people one-on-one, the people in my life. And I try to be there for them on a personal level. And when I think they're ready or if they're curious, then I open up the door for them and Mm. become the avenue of knowledge if they want to learn about Christ and then they can take their steps forward. Mm. Um, I don't necessarily, at this point in my life, don't think I'm ready to get up and start doing public debates or those sorts of things, but it's definitely somewhere I want to be mm. in the future. You have an ant on your shirt. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's on your collar. Oh, yeah, got it's it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's, that's very um, true to what you say about you don't give up on those souls. Mm. But how would you as a person then handle the toxicity? The toxicity of their behavior? Yeah. So if there are toxic people in your life, do you not give up on them or do you go, I don't want you involved in my life? Like how would you tackle that? Because there are some people in my life who have been toxic Mm. per se in terms of how they act, in terms of how they speak, how they believe things. And if they don't agree with me, sure. But when they're too opinionated and stubborn, I feel like it is not my place to try to convince them anymore because they have stapled it. They set it in stone themselves. Mm. So I feel like I should go further away from them. Mm. So how would you do it then? The simple answer is you can open the door for someone, but you can't force them to walk through it. Mm. So you can only be that door. You can say, I'm here for you if you want to learn more. If they don't want to learn more, you can't push them. Mm. It has to come from their their own heart. Mm. Now, it, if you keep continue to pushing push people, you actually present a negative view of of the, of, of the faith because then course. you're trying to force. That's actually forcing your beliefs on someone else. Of course, um, I've had people like that in my life. Yeah, but you can only be that door for them, that avenue of knowledge. Mm. And me, most of the time, they don't want to learn. They're content in their lifestyles and. You know, they they will meet their maker at the end. Um, but for those few that do want to come through, then you're there for them. And who knows, you know, they might continue that lifestyle in the short term or even in the long term, but some will eventually come. And it's just about you being there, giving them that opportunity to come um, back home to God, mm. basically. But... Do you as a human get fed up when they come back to you and then they repeat their whole, the whole thing again? Uh, like the whole, the whole concept of the man who sinned a thousand times went to confession a thousand times. Mm. Have you yourself got fed up with that person and then be like, okay, you know, I can't help you anymore? That's an interesting question. Because there's the, there's the whole concept of the ask hole mm. that would ask you for advice. You give it. They listen, but they don't do it. Mm. But they're still asking you the next day, mm. but they don't do it. Yeah. But they ask you the next day. Yeah. So how would you tackle that? Do you just go, okay, or do you get fed up and be like, why don't you take my advice? I mean, 
obviously for the first couple of times, yes, I would give them, I would always be there to give them advice as mm. long as they're willing to ask for it. Exactly. I would never deny them advice based on their past actions. Mm. If they continue in their ways, then I would moderate that advice to become more accustomed to their particular shortcomings, so mm. to speak. Mm. So you've got, if you've got an alcoholic um, who comes to me and asks for advice on alcohol, Mm. And I tell him, don't drink alcohol. And he goes back and drinks alcohol. And then I say, don't drink alcohol. And he keeps coming back and saying, okay, okay, well, let's analyze why you're drinking alcohol. Mm. And then if we find it's because of stress at work, then we're going to be trying to eliminate that stress he's having at work, Mm. he or she's having at work. So I'll try and moderate and make that advice more specific as it goes. Obviously, you're going to get frustrated and you've got to get angry. Yeah. But it's sort of hard to get angry at people when they continually fail despite you being there for them, despite you giving them the correct advice because that is what we do in the eyes of God constantly. Um, We are constantly failing. The Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God. Um, Mm -hmm. And for me to get fed up and I guess refuse someone or or not give my wholehearted um, connection to that person would make me a hypocrite because I then expect God to forgive me when I fall short for the millionth time. Yeah. Whether it be in, you know, small sins or big sins, venial or mortal sins. Yeah. Um, I have to be a reflection of what God is Mm. in order to call myself a true faithful. And that is a forgiving person that is always willing to accept someone's return. Now, it doesn't mean there isn't space for rebuke. You can rebuke someone and cuff them around the ears and say, pull your head in. I've given you this advice a million times. Actually, take it. You don't have to be a sweet little lamb all the time. (laughs) But you always have to be open and there for that person as Christ is always open and there for us. Mm. Because for me, I think that is my weakness. Mm. Giving advice constantly, people falling short, coming back and then victimizing themselves. Not mm. seeing that they're flawed, but blaming others, not blaming themselves. Or they blame themselves, but then they see that as a get out of jail free card, mm. where after they blame themselves, it is your job to sugarcoat it. Mm. And make them feel better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then they get away with it and then they do it again. And then you just feel like what you're doing is hopeless. Let's see. And yeah. That's what I feel, especially with whether it's people that go through relationship problems or anything like that, mm. or a sense of any sense of weakness. Um, I would give them that advice, but then when they don't take it, I, I think it's just my pride. Mm. I feel like I'm like, what the heck? Like, like this is, this is pure logic. <laughs> and then I'm like, and then they don't listen. And then they, then, then they go ahead and proceed to do what they think or know what they think, but what they feel. And then they come back after I predicted and foreseen that it would end badly. And they go back and they're like, prophet, (laughs) (laughs) prophet, like, what do I do now? And I'm like, well, this is a solution. You can take it or leave it. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, they don't take it. And I'm like, the prophet has spoken, like, you're going to do something bad again. Mm. And then by the millionth time I'm fed up and then I'm like, okay, I can't help you anymore. The best thing you can do. The best advice you can ever give is to direct someone to the advice of God, the Word of God, which is in Holy Scripture. Mm. Sometimes people aren't open to listen to that as well. Mm. 
That's, that's the hard part, exactly. Is if I were to help an agnostic, mm. if I were to help an atheist with a relationship problem, mm. and then I present the word of God, mm. and then they're like, oh, I don't want to listen to this right now. <laughs> and then I'm like, all right then, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, in that case, I mean, there's not much you can do except be that friend, that friend, that, that, op- that open door. And I mean, you you be admired for that, you know. N- maybe not immediately, um, but when people look down the years of their life and they think who was always there to support me and give me advice, it was Jason or it was Dion. Then that's an admirable trait. Being able to tolerate and forgive someone over and over and over again is a difficult thing. It's mm. an admirable trait, and that is what makes it noble and honourable. Mm. Um, not necessarily be accommodating of their shortcomings, but always being there to lift them up after they fall down. Mm. Having that strength to lift them up as Exactly, because well. it takes a toll on you. It does. It may not be as much as, as it does on them, but it does take a toll on you. Mm. you know, you're not entirely divorced from their struggle. Mm. That is true. That is true. Um, oh, you have a way with words. <laughs> 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 no wonder you're doing creative writing. <laughs> And law. Yeah, and law. <laughs> How do you balance all of that with your uni degree then? Especially with taking on a third degree. All, all of what? Like all of, um, well, your work, mm. your society work, and also staying on top with pursuing your faith, social work outside mm. of uni. How do you balance that with uni? With uni? Yeah. I'd say that my faith is the basis of all things. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> My faith calls me to work. So in the book of Proverbs, I think there's a passage that says, when will you get out of bed, you sluggard, you lazy person, basically. <laughs> you like sleeping, you like folding your hands to rest. Get it, Take your instruction from the ant. Mm. He was always working or poverty will come up upon you like a thief. Um it's so it's Asian. Yeah. <laughs> Work is a good thing. Yeah. Um, there, was a, there was a quote from um, <laughs> the show called Fresh Off the Boat. Yeah, yeah. It's about the Asian family, Eddie yeah. Huang's family. And so they employed a white guy. Mm. And the white guy was like, um, do we have vacation days? And then the Asian, the, the Asian dad was like, your job is a vacation from poverty. <laughs> <laughs> true (laughs) no i I think that fits into i'm a bit counterculture in the sense that a lot of people um yeah like i was saying want immediate pleasure they're they're, they're constantly seeking pleasure in their life Mm. i'm not seeking pleasure i'm seeking righteousness and um righteousness work is a is a product of righteousness Mm. um and if i am to work there's satisfaction to be had in work and there's satisfaction to be had in meaningful work especially and i think studying and becoming more enlightened with a great opportunity in a Western nation at an amazing university is such a wonderful opportunity to achieve enlightenment through meaningful, productive work. That's mm. actually quite mentally stimulating. It's not tedious. It's not boring. It's, mm. it's, it's applicable to society. It's applicable to your personal life. And it's also entertaining, um, I don't see anything wrong with that. I, obviously, it is hard at times, um, but it's 
it's great. I do. I derive a lot of pleasure from it. And you know, I don't understand people that go to university and they won't turn up to lectures. Or I guess if their lectures not doesn't have that much bearing, or they don't have a good presenter, then okay, fine. But mm. they just basically hate their degree and they don't want to be there. It's like you don't want to be there. Don't be there. Go do what you want. Uh. <laughs> you know what I mean? I want to be here. I want to learn. Um, because it's going to make me into a better person. Hmm. So actively yearn for righteousness and work is a way in which you can achieve righteousness. Hmm. In terms of managing um, work work, like money work, um, I see that as as in the same way. Like, you know, it's good for me to have money so I'm not reliant on other people mm-hmm. um, or so I don't fall into poverty. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, yeah, I try and uh, work as much as I can, even if it's only the cinema or tutoring, obviously early days in university um, before mm. I can get a proper career. But, um, yeah, that's, that's, as, as for juggling, it's, it's honestly just a question of time management. Like, do you, are you disciplined with your time? It actually is a, is a question of, of discipline time management. It's like you can have freedom through discipline. I know there's a sort of, oxymoronic statements like you've got to restrict yourself to free yourself but it is true because if you just have unmitigated freedom you just do whatever you want whenever you want you will quickly fall into ruin however if you restrict yourself and you choose selectively where you're going to apply your faculties at each point in time then you will have freedom because you can look into the future you can craft a picture of what you want your life to be like then you make your time fit around that in terms of a procedure of how you're going to get there and that gives you freedom that gives you the ability to mold your future and that's a powerful ability that a lot of people don't don't realize would you consider that entirely freedom or would you consider it so or or are you um in a sense changing the concept of freedom and putting it as a calculated freedom then I don't think um, true freedom is ever really achieved. I think everyone is a slave to something. Mm. Um, Some people are slaves to money. Some people are slaves to women. Mm. Um, Some people are slaves to, well, well, anything really, any Mm. vice. I choose to be a servant or a slave to God. Mm. Um, And I follow what he calls me to do. And... So in that sense, I'm quite happy to, yes, I suppose you could say I'm sort of restricting the concept of freedom because um, if you just had unmitigated freedom, I can just do whatever I want, whatever I want. That's a horrible thing. You imagine the implications on society if that happened. If everyone Anarchy. Yeah, exactly, basically. And we're seeing sort of resurgences of that concept now and people in the concept of moral relativism saying well i can believe what i want you can believe what i want and we can both be right no you can't both be right i'm sorry there's one truth you know i can't say two plus two equals four and you can say two plus two equals five and we can both be right because i mean uh, i'm joking (laughs) 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 but um i apologize if this country actually i don't apologize (laughs) this is controversial but if you want to craft a society that is civil and honourable and can produce great things, then moral relativism and its child, anarchy, can't be have a place. Mm. I mean, that's what starts wars, though. 
In what sense? Having a sense where you believe that there is one truth. And in some cases it does. Like um, having the uh, whole sense of, no, you're wrong, I'm right, is what, it's what breeds conflict. Mm. And behind that is the, um, the, human, the human aspect of stubbornness, um, rage, inner, inner turmoils. But I would, I would believe that that's what would start battles and conflicts, like physicals, wars, the battle of ideologies, having that sense of mutual decency. Like where would you draw the line of mutual respect and um, uh, relativism then? Like mm. is there a thin line or is it too thin of a line to even call a line? I mean, that whole sense raised, of I respect you, I respect myself, yeah. you respect me, we're cool, mm. I disagree with you, you disagree with me. But where's how closely is that where you can link it to the whole, you're not right though? Mm. Like how can you do that in, and still remain um, civil? Okay. So I think everyone is worthy of dignity. I must observe everyone's dignity because mm. they are made by the creator. Mm. I don't necessarily think everyone is worthy of respect. I think respect is something that is earned. Amen. Not, you don't have a right to my respect, basically. Not entitled yeah. to it. If I see you, you know, killing someone, I don't <laughs> have to respect you just because you're a human. I think you have dignity and I must observe that dignity and not commit heinous crimes against you, but I don't, I don't respect you. Um, in terms of where we draw the line, so in that sense, I think I must observe someone's dignity. But if they hold opinions that I can see are so blatantly untrue, then I'm not forced to respect those opinions at all. Um, now, how I go about attacking those opinions then is another story because I think very amateurish sort of people will say like, oh, you're wrong, blah, 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 blah. They're only going to re- produce a defensive response from that person. However, if you go up to that person and you are not necessarily peaceful, but you are civil with that person, you try to explain to them through logic and reason in a way that is not uh, demeaning to them. It doesn't assault their character, but rather it's like you two versus the problem rather mm. than you versus them. Mm. Then I think you have a much greater chance of showing that person the truth. Mm. Um but there are instances in which there are grievous wrongs or grievous deviations from the truth where physical force and battle is justified. So, for example, in Hitler and World War II, what he was doing was a grievous, grievous and heinous uh, deviation from the truth. And I think the Allies were completely justified in going to war against him because the truth is that humans have dignity and what he was doing was absolutely violating that dignity and it was horrible. And so I think there are instances in which war is justified. Um, but I would say, as for your comment on the... Ba- oh, sorry, did you want to ask a question? No, but uh, oh, I was just yeah. adding on like how you say like how war is justified but it is not should not be glorified. Mm. It shouldn't be the first priority but war- rather the last resort. Yeah, exactly. 100%. So don't misconstrue uh, what we say and no. think that we're going to go to war with you 100% if you say something wrong. <laughs> we are not, uh, what was it? There was a quote. And it's like, we do not search for war, but we are ready for it. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. 
So, <laughs> so anyone out there that wants to fight us, we're able to talk to you. <laughs> but if you have your swords, we have ours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think you should always be prepared to, if you are willing enough to have your opinion and call it truth, I think you should be prepared to defend it, mm. essentially. A lot of people haven't thought through their opinions very much. Mm. You know, a lot of people um, will just say, oh, I believe this, or I believe that. Or if they haven't fallen, uh, fallen, sorry, if they haven't thought it through, they'll just resort to the euphemism of, well, I just believe it's a person's choice what they want to believe. Well, not really. It's not truly a belief. Exactly. It's, it's not a acknowledgement. Belief. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the times it's not a belief. It's just a feeling they have what makes it feel good. A belief implies a logical uh, extrapolation of thought and a process in which you examine something and therefore you believe in it. A feeling is just, well, this makes me feel good, so I'm going to just act it out in my life. No, it's not a belief. It's mm. a feeling. Mm. Ooh, that's a comments <laughs> roll. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Um, with that, you um, are very passionate about Lord of the Rings. Yes. <laughs> Not a good segue. What a great segue. Not a good segue, but I'm trying to edge out. Um, so with your uh, Catholic belief and mm. your Catholic faith, you... You tend to, with Elio, you mm. focus a lot on the Catholic ideologies behind fantasy. Mm. So, um, and also since you're a creative, a creative writer, yep. with uh, very passionate on literature, do you see the human um, connection and the Catholic faith in Lord of the Rings becoming very prominent, or only being more of an, uh, how do we say, uh, just a, a little. Uh, tip of the hat. In what sense, prominent in society today? Like, yeah, I think uh, I think the connections becoming ever more clear. Yeah. Tolkien was a, a Catholic, a profound Catholic. We know that, so we mm. know that his writings were profoundly, profoundly influenced by Catholic theology mm. and by Christ. And it's funny, Lord of the Rings represents a story in which a world is falling into corruption and chaos slowly. It's not necessarily a big onslaught of an apocalypse that happens in two seconds and you just die, like mm. the end of the world. Mm. It's a slow corruption that slowly spreads and spreads. And, and it's happening even from The Hobbit. Um, mm. You know, the, the beautiful forests get decayed, cities start falling, mm. and the, the realms of men are slowly falling. and mm. People you know, losing faith. Exactly. And I think that is absolutely reflective of what's happening in society today. It's, it's not a massive, massive crumbling, um, but it's a slow decay. It's, it's, it's these new ideologies that are eating away at the pillars of truth that upheld Western civilization, or even just normal civilization as a whole mm. for so long and allowed us to be prosperous and allowed us to develop great things. Mm. Um, and I think ideologies like moral relativism, where there's no such thing as truth, we all have our own truth, is one such thing that is eroding in our culture. Mm. I think a lack of faith, a lack of adherence to God um, and an inability to bend the knee to someone greater than you, the king, I think that is eroding our culture because if you don't have a king to bow down to, if you don't have a God to 
instruct you or to lead you, then you basically all become gods yourselves. And gods always look for someone to subjugate um, or someone to have under them. That is, that is the nature of gods. Gods are powerful, powerful beings. Um, and you're going to try and exert your, your influence over society, so to speak. And that's an ex- incredibly corrupting thing because it manifests in a variety of ways. But one thing I did want to say is um, one important thing about Lord of the Rings is that Tolkien offers us a way out of this corruption and decay. And contrary to popular belief, it's not necessarily the great orators or the great warriors or those sorts of things who actually end up destroying this corruption which is manifested in the ring. It is the small deeds of the small everyday folk of society who Mm. are the hobbits. Um, They represent the bulk of the human race is people that, you know, are content to sort of live their lives and, you know, have their families and have their simple pleasures. Um, It is these who are called upon to resist this corruption. So I think a lot of people in society, they see a problem, they think, oh, well, I'll leave it to someone better than myself to take care of it or, um, you know, I'll leave it to someone more knowledgeable or I'll leave it to someone more skilled at a particular area. But no, it's actually the everyday person, the lay person that is called to called to battle, so to speak, called to a journey to to save their, their world, to save their society. And I think that metaphor is, is absolutely reflective of, of today's situation. And I think it's a beautiful metaphor. It's a hopeful metaphor. Um, you know, it's, it means that everyone can participate in, mm. in salvation. But see, it is that whole level of comfort that the hobbits displayed that just that perfectly demonstrates this vulnerability. Mm. Because the hobbits, they, didn't, they aren't invulnerable, but they think that they are because that they're so cast away and mm. they're so hidden and they can live out their lives and families. But then it was in that, um, it was in the end of the third book when the hobbits came back and the, show, the Shire is destroyed. Yeah. Corrupted by Saruman. Mm. And it was easily corrupted. It was mm. done in a matter of days. Mm. And I find that very prominent with people who are very confident, uh, are very comfortable living their own lives, you know, mm. the humanist route. Yeah. Or just people that are just carefree, happy-go-lucky, easy to corruption. Mm. Very easy to be brought down upon by external forces. And um, you try your best, you know, to call upon them to, like, take up that chance to show them that they can push themselves further than they than they can. But mm. then they tend to st- stay in their comfort zone and then that's what, brings, that's what becomes their downfall when yeah. they're faced with situations that are out of their skill set or forte. Mm. And um, it's great how you talk about how that book is more clear now. Those mm. books are clear now because that's what Tolkien intended. Mm. He didn't want it to be an allegory of what the times were. Mm. He wanted it to be a symbol of applicability, mm. how you can apply to any time, mm. any era of the world. So um, he, he hated it when people would apply it to things or like say that it's a key symbolism or a key symbol of what happened then saying that the ring was the nuclear bomb. He was like... No, it's not the nuclear bomb. <laughs> yeah, he was like, you're an idiot. Fool. <laughs> Fool of a two. Exactly. And, um, <laughs> he, he said that the ring could be a vice of any kind. 
advice of any kind, of any time, of any generation, mm. whether it be women or money or mm. sex or anything like that. Yeah. So easy, easy to corrupt. Mm. Easy to, it was easiest to corrupt even gods. Mm. Gandalf was scared of touching the ring. Yeah. You, know, like, don't you dare give me that. Mm. Yeah. Powerful people. Yeah. yeah. The people who thought they were the most pure of heart, such as a hobbit, mm. would, would, were easy to corrupt because they were never introduced to that type of power. Mm. So then when it's thrust upon them, the, the theory doesn't work out entirely. Mm. And I believe that I pray for those people. I pray for those people immensely who just live their own life. Do, they have goals and aspirations and I applaud them for that. But those people who have no goals, no aspirations, want to live a comfort life, a comforting life, when they're put in the real world, mm. you're bound to break. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's not living, it's just existing. Exactly. You just, if you're simply living and, and coasting along and doing whatever's pleasurable to your flesh, really, I mean, if you look at it, your life does not have that much deviation from an animal. I mean, an animal wakes up, it eats, it sleeps, goes to the bathroom, and I guess it reproduces. But I mean, we are more evolved than that. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're, we are made in the image of, of the creator, you know. <laughs> so, Illuvatar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that is very true. That is very true, 100%. Oh, God, I wonder what Elliot is going to talk about. <laughs> call this crusade anyway, as, as soon as he comes on. Um, and coming back to our experiences with Rome, yes. did you feel like you've reached a new peak on your Catholic faith when you went there? Yes, definitely. Because you, when we went there, it was interesting because you can see the good and the bad. In one sense, Rome is seen as the, as the epicenter of the Catholic faith, mm. and that's true. Mm. But in that sense, you tend to idealize it and think it's a certain utopia. Um, it's not. It's not really. It's, it's not. In it's fact, a lot of things is, is with disgusting and dirty and graffiti on the walls and that sort of thing. Gypsies. Yeah, and scammers. gypsies everywhere. Scammers, pickpockets, that sort of thing. That helped me realize that there is no utopia on earth ever to be had. The only utopia is in, in heaven. heaven. Exactly. Um, so that was good in one sense, but in the other sense, it is absolutely mind blowing to see the wondrous works of men who are inspired by God. Mm. That was mind-blowing because you see these amazing feats of architecture and artwork and things that that are just so beautiful that they have to have come from, from a higher source, a higher imagination, mm. um, and, and that is what we see. And so Rome was amazing in that respect, um, it was amazing because it was mentally stimulating. Um, also, when you are in the presence of great things, it calls you to be great by your very proximity to it. It, it, it makes you self-conscious in a sense because you think, you know, I pale in comparison to this. Exactly. Um, what am I doing with my life? Mm. This is something to aspire to. Mm. And so that, that, that trip to Rome and even to London was... Massively, uh, it was a extreme source of motivation 
for me, I'd say, to to get my life in order and to prioritise and develop the most meaningful but also quick route to becoming a righteous man, Mm. worthy of respect of Mm. people and um, that, you know, I can kneel before my creator one day and he can place his hand on my shoulder and say, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. (laughs) With you I'm well pleased. Um, That's my goal in life. That is literally my goal. Um, I don't want money. I don't want anything. I mean, if if God sees fit to give me that, then then so be it, you know. Um, Praise God. But Would you feel like once you reach heaven, you're still in service or do you feel like God releases you from his service once you've entered the footsteps I, I would never, I would never relinquish service to God because I'm never, I, I would always just by, by, by the very knowledge I have of him, I would know that he is, is worthy of service. There, there could be nothing more meaningful than serving God. I don't mm. think mm. there can be not, there can be nothing more meaningful. There can be nothing more righteous than serving God. And even in the proximity, even he might not call on my service in heaven, but I would always be ready, ready to serve. Because mm. on my manifestation of what God would say if I were mm. to, after I have, you know, the, the stamp of approval from St. <laughs> Peter <laughs> uh, walking in, I feel like he would say to me, you can rest. Oh, of course yeah, you can so rest. It's like you can rest where he's like, I release you from my service on earth. <laughs> yeah. So I can now just live in glory. Mm. Yeah. As heaven is um, the absence of, of sadness mm. and the the home of all happiness and purity, I would believe that he would say, I, I wouldn't say that like, you know, he's like, you can do whatever the heck you want. Yeah. But I would say that you are now free from that torment of service. Mm. So... That the glamorous side of, of service remains, but I'll say that I released you from that from, term. From, yes, I see. From that suffering. I see, yeah. Yeah, so that's what I would say. No, there's, there's truth to be had in that, yeah. Jason, definitely. Yeah. 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 Um, have you watched The Young Pope yet? No, I haven't, actually. I reckon you'll love it. Yeah. I reckon you'll love it. And there's a new season called The New Pope. Yeah. So The New Pope focuses on a Pope that is very active on pursuing the middle way of mm. all things. And I told you the young Pope was about a guy that was American, smokes cigarettes, drinks cherry Coke, mm. but he's a very conservative guy, mm. you know, wants to uh, make the Catholic Church desirable again, closes all its doors, <laughs> no sense of painting or picture of him will be on any type of merchandise. Mm. He wants to display that mystery, bring back that mystery of the Catholic Church, mm. And, um, you know, against abortion, against gay marriage, against everything like that. But at the same time, he was a man that worked miracles. Sure. Yeah. So there was a woman that wanted a child, couldn't conceive a child. So he like was on his knees praying constantly, bear this woman, a child to God. Mm. She was pregnant. It worked. Mm. But he always never admitted it to be a miracle. He was always saying, I am... I am only in the in the grace of great coincidences. So um, he was a struggling Catholic himself. Mm. So he was someone that was always having second doubts about God. Mm. He was always like doubting uh, God's existence. 
he was slowly tripping on that line. Mm. So he would either be like, Lord, why do you forsaken me? Blah, 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 blah. Mm. You, you, you cunning person, like you cunning, like, uh, you know, God of, of, um, what was it? It's like, you are the manifestation of stubbornness and pride. <laughs> but then the next day he'll be like, God, forgive me for what I have said. Mm. Yeah, going to confession and everything like that. So I think you would enjoy it. I mean, it has Jude Law. I will watch it. So Jude Law is like... Just because you recommended it. Yeah. And it's, it also <laughs> talks about how the, the political side of the Catholic Church, yes. the political side of the Vatican, how the cardinals themselves aren't perfect. The cardinals themselves are righteous. Well, in the show, they're righteous mm. bastards that... Plan to that that try to over, try to plan to overtake the Pope. Mm. Don't believe in everything he says. Like, how is this going to affect our Catholic Church mm. and everything like that? And you, I mean, it has some nudity, but mm. I reckon you're you're a man. You can handle it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I want to interject in something there because you raised a point about mm. uh, the political side of the Catholic Church, perhaps mm. the more corrupt sides. Yeah, and I think this is a big deterrent of a lot of people for the Church for coming coming to God. Mm. Um, a lot of people confuse correlation with causation. So mm. you can have an organization that is good mm. and evil people can be in that organization. Mm. That does not make the organization inherently bad. It just means that evil people happen to have made their way into that organization and mm. it is up for us to purge that organization, uh, that organization of the evil people inside of it. So if a police officer... God forbid, murders someone or extorts someone or accepts a bribe and they're corrupt um, to get them out of a crime, that's an evil police officer. But it doesn't mean the police force is inherently evil. Exactly. So the police force, we still need the police force. It fulfills a, a basic function. But no one will say the police force is evil because that man did a bad thing. Mm. They will say that man is an evil police officer. Mm. In the same way, people should view the church. So there's a lot of things that have come out about, um, you know, pedophilic priests and that sort of thing. And that is absolutely disgusting. And those priests guilty of that will have their portion in hell for eternity. Mm. Um, But it does not mean that priests, that all priests are evil or that the Catholic Church is inherently evil. It is the man. Exactly. It is the man and they happen to make their way into that organisation. And so I think just, yeah, I just want to add that in there. Yeah. Have you watched Spotlight? No, I haven't. You should watch Spotlight then. Yeah. It's the movie about the journalists in Boston that cracked down all the cases of sexual assault from priests. Really? Yeah. So it has Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton. Okay. Yeah. uh, Rachel Adams. Hmm. McAdams or Adams, but like, um, it's a very good movie because mm. some of those actors and some of the people that were behind the films were Catholics. Mm. So they were very passionate about saying that the Catholic Church isn't perfect, but it's not the Catholic Church, but the men and women in the Catholic Church yeah. that make it imperfect. Yeah, it's not the gun; it's the person holding the trigger. Mm. Yeah. So Mark Ruffalo himself was raised Catholic. Okay. So he, the character that he portrays, was very. Um, passionate about exposing this as well mm. because the, se- the the fact that that the Vatican knew about this but then held it and kept it a secret mm. is an act of vanity and an act of pride and mm. fear and weakness but that wouldn't that's not the Vatican mm. you know what I mean so 
And even that character, even though he exposed the night, like the thousands of cases, he still went to church mm. because he believes in the sole belief of the Catholic Church, mm. not the beliefs of men. Mm. Yeah. So I think you should watch that as well. Yeah. Okay. And no, there's a lot of movies, man. The Two Popes is a good movie as well. Two Popes, Young Pope, yeah. Spotlight. <laughs> good Catholic films. Good. Yeah. And um, uh, I totally agree with you how the whole sense where it's it's not the catholic church being evil mm. the only concept that you the only organization that you can link that theory correctly would be the nazis mm. A, an organization bred from hatred yes yeah so yeah. um so guys catholic church ain't nazis <laughs> so um <laughs> like um oh but now i want to talk to you about things that you believe in sure. like, such as so gay marriage, homosexuality as a concept, or well, as something that is very now prominent in our society, mm. ever-growing society, mm. how do you feel about it as a Catholic? Sure, sure. But before, you know, you state anything, <laughs> let's, let's make sure that everyone's on the right page with sure. how you see things. Sure, so just a disclaimer before we delve into this topic is... I know that a lot of people want to say that people who disagree with homosexual marriage hate homosexuals or that they're homophobic, but that is patently false. That's not true. I don't hate you if you're a homosexual. That's the truth. I don't hate you. Mm. And if you try and say that I do, I'm just going to deny it because I don't hate you. And mm. As you should know from listening to this podcast, I'm trying to be committed as much as possible to the truth. So I'm not lying to you mm-hmm. when I say that. I, in fact, love you enough to be willing to share the truth with you at my own expense, at my own negative consequence, that I receive hatred for this sort of view. I receive um, anger and I receive threats and all these sorts of things. But I don't care because it's the truth and Mm. I'm willing to share it with you. So I don't hate you if you're homosexual. I believe you have dignity and I believe you have worth. Mm. And I don't think you are defined by an extremely specific behavior that you happen to practice. Homosexuality is not you. You are you. Mm. Okay. So I don't hate you. Mm -hmm. I dislike homosexuality as a sin. Now, that being said, I also want to say that it's great that we're talking about this because... Um, it, it feels like it's a taboo topic, like there's no dialogue to be had on this. You just have to agree with the status quo or that's it, like you're crucified. But I think all things in society should be open to debate and discussion. That's how we're, the only way we're going to improve. Mm. Once you start to censor topics, then you close off the idea of growth and you close off the idea of um, exchange of knowledge and, and that's a bad thing in my opinion. Now, moving on to the topic proper, homosexual, homosexuality in general. Let's look at it this way, from a Christian perspective, from my perspective. A common thing you hear from the people who claim to be homosexual um, is, I was born that way. And they think that that line, I was born that way, gives you an automatic pass to say that something is good. Because I was born that way, then it must be good. Or it must be normal or it must be okay. I was born a racist. <laughs> you could say that, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, but it's not true. 
Just because you were born a certain way does not necessarily mean that a particular behavior is good. And I'm going to explain why. We all are born as fallen creatures with the proclivity to sin inherent in our very blood. Okay, the Bible says all are fallen short of the glory of God. Not one, not most people, all, Mm. everyone. Mm. So we are all born with the proclivity to sin. Technically, we can say we are all born that way. We are all born sinners. Does that make sinning okay? No, it doesn't. How that proclivity to sin manifests in different lives is very different. So one person might be born with a proclivity to alcoholism as their sin, as their particular vice. Another person might be born with a proclivity to slander and gossip and they take great joy in that and that's their particular vice. Mm. A big one in our society is the manifestation of the proclivity to sexual sin. In a lot of people it's pornography. Uh, adultery, that sort of thing. But it also manifests as homosexuality. Okay? So we are all born that way, in a sense. We are all born sinners. We're all born with the proclivity to sin. Yeah. Just because we're born that way does not mean that it is okay. So that's the first part I want to lay out. Now I've got to look at why it's not okay. The reason homosexuality is not okay is because it is an unnatural distortion of the natural sexual state that God created us to be in. Sex and sexual pleasure, sexual pleasure is intended as a motivation to procreate. It's not intended just as a pleasurable thing to have for pleasure. The reason sex is pleasurable is so humans can procreate and fill the earth. That is the reason. So if it wasn't pleasurable, then we wouldn't be doing it, really. Mm. I mean, let's be honest. Um, but it's an unnatural state to be in if you are homosexual and you are doing your, your sexual life basically is not centered around procreation. It's centered around your own pleasure. And I think that in and of itself is a wrong mindset to have. You shouldn't be living just for your own pleasure. You should be living for the benefit of society um, Mm. and giving back to your community. Mm. And so the very homosexual mindset where it's like, I'm just having sex for my own pleasure. Really? You might say, well, I'm trying to give my partner pleasure as well. But really, it's for your own pleasure, Mm. primarily. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing I want to say is, if I took a homosexual man, let's say, I took a homosexual man's sperm, and placed it inside of a woman, that sperm would still be looking for an egg. So biologically, that man's sperm is still looking for an egg. That man's sperm is still technically heterosexual. Mm. So that tells us it's not a problem of biology. It is a problem of the mind. It's a distortion of the mind. Mm-hmm. Okay, the biology is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. The sexual organs work fine. <laughs> it's the mind that is distorted. And... Therefore, it stands to reason, if it is a problem of the mind, then it should be treated as such. Okay. That's my, that's my, that's my opinion on it. Um, again, I want to say I don't hate homosexuals. <laughs> now, you might think I do, but I'm saying I don't. So I now, when you, when you talk about being born in, to inherently sin, so would you agree then that we are born straight? Born straight. Yeah. So born straight in terms of how... The natural state of a human is to be straight, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the natural sexual state of a human, male and female together. Mm-hmm. 
equals more humans. Mm-hmm. Now, see, and and if you were to um, plot it down to the human, right, the act, mm. you um, would yeah, you state that homosexuality is a certain way that you don't agree with um, against the natural order of life. But for, yeah, so like I said uh, with you, would a person that is gay but does not commit sexual acts, someone that is lives a very holy life and is chaste, how would you react to how Would they be accepted in the eyes of mm. God? Well. I know you don't know who, how God thinks, sure, but like, sure. like, how would you see it? If a person who is born with a particular disposition to alcohol mm. abstains from alcohol, mm then he's fine. I mean, if you're born with that temptation to sin, we all have that in different ways. If you do sin, then it's a problem. Yeah. If you act on that temptation, then it's a problem. Mm. The temptation is the lure, come here and sin. It's the hook. It's mm. the bait. Mm. We're the fish. Mm. If you go and then bite on that bait, <clears throat> then you get reeled in and you get caught. If you look at it, you go, no. I'm not doing that. You exercise discipline. You exercise your mental faculties. Mm. Then you say no. Then you're okay. It's the same thing. There's a fine line though because Jesus Christ talks about um, about lust and adultery of the heart. If you even so much as look at a person with lust, it's it's applied to other women, but I think it can be applied to men as well, homosexuals. Mm. Um, if you even so much as look at another person with lust, then you've committed adultery with them in your heart. So there's a there's a fine line between appreciating a person's inherent beauty and looking at them in an explicitly sexual way um, and wanting to be sexual with that person, and that's a sin. If you act on those homosexual impulses, that's a sin. If you act on those pornographic impulses, that's a sin. If you act on adul- adulterous impulses, that's a sin. If you act on alcoholic impulses, that's a sin. But if you are struggling and you're tempted but you defeat that temptation, then it's not a sin. See, um, one thing I learned is that I knew for a long time, but it was put into words by actually a teacher on the trip um, that came with us, was there's, there's three sorts of parts to a human, right? There's the appetite, which is the flesh, mm-hmm. um, what our flesh wants to do. Mm-hmm. There's the will which is our sort of driving force that we mm. can exercise. And there's the intellect. So the correct way for a person to conduct themselves in the world is for the intellect to govern the will and the will suppresses the appetite or the will controls the appetite. So if you look at it in that way, if you look at, let's say, I don't know, alcoholism and your appetite wants that alcohol, really wants that alcohol, it will be pleasurable for me. I love it. You look at that. Your appetite wants that, but your intellect says no. That's wrong. Every time I do that, I feel bad. Mm. Every time I do that, I feel further away from my goals. Every time I do that, I feel dirty, blah, blah, blah. It's just wrong. You know it's wrong. The mm. intellect is telling you it's wrong. Mm. Then who are you going to choose? Which is the higher form, the appetite or the intellect? It's the intellect. So the intellect governs your will and then the will controls that appetite and forces it to obey the intellect. And that's the correct way for a person to be governed. The way most of society governs themselves now is their appetite 
uh, overpowers their will or governs their will and the intellect is ignored and we just live by our flesh and that's that's not good and mm. so yeah this i mean you could talk on this for hours but that's that's the succinct version yeah but see how i described the scenario for a person uh where they do identify themselves as gay mm. so they are set in stone believing that they are gay that if they were to marry a person, it would be the person of the same sex. They just don't commit those lustful acts. Well, if they're planning to, I mean, it's it's this it's very similar. Mm. So if you're like, I'm gay, like, well, I haven't been sexually gay with anyone mm. yet, mm. so I'm fine. But I want to, and I'm acting actively looking for a gay partner. I'm actually then. It's 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 the intention to commit sin, which mm. is just as bad. It's sort of like the lust of the adultery of the heart. It's like if you're looking at someone, like if you're looking at another man's wife with the in a sexual manner, you have the intention to want to sleep with that woman, mm. then it's adultery in your heart. Mm. But what if they do not seek the sexual the sexual uh, perception of the of the other person of the other let's say it's a man. Mm. Let's say they don't perceive that. They perceive it, as you would say, appreciating their beauty, mm. but not in a lustful way. And this is a scenario that I'm just drawing up. Yeah, sure. If they were to marry and for the sense of procreation, they can't. So then they follow. They, they go with the biological state where they would have an intermediate mother, like a person that would intercede to give birth. Mm. And they both live very holy lives. How would you, how would you see that then? It, it's still wrong because... Number one, marriage is between men and, men and a woman. I know mm-hmm. legally now it's been changed, mm-hmm. but marriage was an institution created for a man and a woman. Also, number two, going through an intermediate. Children, there's a reason uh, women and men are different. It's because they have different things that they can offer to children. So women are inherently more nurturing and men are inherently more protective, those sorts of things. Mm. I mean, people in the audience can say, well, oh, they're made up by society. It's like, no, women literally have breasts, which are organs, the manifestations of nurturing children. Mm. Organs literally created for nurturing. You can't tell me that's a social construct. Um, virginity is now identified as being a social construct. Virginity? Why? Um, because... There is... Well, the value placed on virginity? Um, the whole concept of virginity itself. The concept of it? Yeah. As in like the value? Like yeah, virginity yeah. is a precious thing? Yeah. So they, they place, people now are placing virginity as itself a social construct where it's dominated by... It's predominantly told by society to be kept pure. Hmm. But what is being kept pure? What is being kept pure? Yeah. Is well, I, I guess that that's understandable because yeah. when you create a culture in which sex is pleasurable and you can just mm. have it with as many people you want, mm. then virginity isn't virginity has no value really. Mm. But when you have a culture in which sex is a sacred thing intended for the procreation of a person to be had with one partner, one spouse, your husband and wife, then mm. virginity is a valuable thing. Mm. So I think that's just a byproduct of of cultural values, really. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, of course it would be in people's best interest to say, oh, virginity is not precious because I want to have sex all the time. Mm. I mean, like... <laughs> and if someone's a virgin, they're obviously not having sex. I mean, like, <laughs> the, like what I'm saying is that, like, you know how, well, the general um, perception of virginity is when you have sex, you burst your hymen. Yeah. Yeah. So if that hymen is bursted prematurely either, or people have had cases where they ride a bike. Yeah, or a horse. Yeah, or a horse stuff, or something, yeah. yeah. So... The aspect of the virginity like concept. The physical hymen. Yeah. So then like what, what is left of virginity being defined now, like after that, after the fact? Because that's what people are now discussing more because saying that like how it is a social construct to, like you said, the culture, mm. the culture built on the sense of purity being wholesome, um, not committing to lustful acts but if you were to expand that and broaden that how would you define virginity without a culture hi guys um this is just part one of the dion series and part two will be released in the next couple of days so stay tuned to hear more about what he has to say